Welcome to Leading Conversations, the podcast that gives you a front row seat into how six top executives influenced cultural change across some of Australia's biggest brands. Each episode explores their leadership growth and commitment to supporting cultural transformation, a rewarding and at times challenging journey. There is a lot of time lost, a lot of energy lost in groups of people trying to do things when you just can't speak plainly, get to the bottom of things and move on. So learning how to have a genuine conversation is the fastest way to get to where you need to. That's Steve Baird, former head of marketing for Virgin's Velocity Frequent Flyer program. In this episode, Steve explains how he contributed to changing an entrenched culture and how he led during peak COVID-19. Steve is speaking with host Lisa Alexander AM, former head coach of the Australian national netball team, the Diamonds. Not only did she lead a cultural revolution at the Diamonds, but along with an 81% win rate, she coached them to gold at the Glasgow Commonwealth Games and the Sydney Netball World Cup. Here's Lisa. Surely there's no better time to stress test the culture and leadership of a business than when the entire industry is faced with collapse. Enter COVID-19. Steve Baird, who at the time was head of marketing for Virgin's Velocity Frequent Flyer program, was front and centre when the pandemic played havoc with the airlines in 2020 and froze global travel. With 17 years under his belt, 10 at Qantas and 7 at Virgin, He found success pivoting a culture right for change, enabling himself and his team to kick some serious goals. And today he brings his hard-won business skills to his new role as CEO of the International Justice Mission, a not-for-profit with the mission of ending slavery in our lifetime. Coming from a family of high achievers, Steve's success is no surprise – His father, Bruce Baird AM, was a former deputy leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party. His brother, Mike Baird, is the former Premier of New South Wales. And his sister is ABC journalist and writer, Julia Baird. But he says it's his mum who's been his biggest influence. She's a strong model of empathy, always treated people with dignity, and is so amiable. That, he says, she had to read a book on how to say no. His dad, being a lot more plain speaking, didn't have that problem, and it's a skill that over the years Steve has learned to lean into. With such strong influences, I began by asking Steve how he'd describe his leadership style. You know, I like to take a high-energy approach. I always like having a sense of optimism You know, my best kind of days are when there's four or five of us in a room with a whiteboard thinking what could be. And, uh, you know, I sort of like dreaming. I like working in ways that bring out the best of others and, uh, you know, get a lot of satisfaction out of sort of team members reaching their potential and doing their best. And with such a long stint in the airline industry, can you paint a picture of the culture and what you thought needed to change when you came into it? I think as Aussies, we, well, COVID aside, we love to travel. We love to get out of the country and you've got a good starting point when you're trying to market something. People get it and they're interested in it. So I, was, I found it a very interesting career. 
You know, when I first started at Virgin, what I could see, a great brand, a great product, lots of passion in the team, but a team that just was not pulling together. We were in different locations geographically, had different ideas and what needed to get done. I saw that between geographies, there was misalignment on what we needed to do. There was indirect conversations going on when there was frustration. You know, there was some back-channeling and I actually just saw some people outright fearful of, of approaching people because there was just a sense of intimidation. And there just wasn't the trust levels to lead the team and what we needed to do. So that was something I focused on over the seven years. How do we create a culture where we are bringing the best out of each other and treating each other well? And so how did you go about making those changes? Because they're significant. And what reaction did you get from the staff? The first year or two, you do feel a little bit like Robinson Crusoe in the sense that, you know, you're going it alone and and the team, you know, when I suggested some initiatives, they kind of look at you a bit strangely like, well, we've got a formula to crack this. And so you're going off script when you're saying, regardless of that template, we actually need to get to the rub of these issues. So what I did was two fundamental things. I had to, uh, you know, reset up my leadership team not just on capabilities, but also on, you know, behaviours and establish a way for them to work together more effectively. And that involved bringing in uh, Steve Lacey from Leading Teams. And we worked with him on workshops really over the course of the next five years, which was all around what are our behaviours? How do we learn from what we're doing? How do we build common goals? And how do we regularly check in on how we're going against that? You know, when I joined the sort of, you know, the engagement score was, you know, sitting at about 45%. And by the time I left, the last check-in, now it was just before COVID, but it was was 88%. So we'd seen, you know, a real shift. And I think, you know, if I was to sort of think of a real career highlight in that time, it was, you know, at the 2018 Marketing Awards for Australian Marketing Team of the Year, We won that award. Actually, we didn't think we would because it was, you know, it's a big event and there was Tourism Australia and they did this incredible Dundee campaign. And so we felt like the underdog. But, gee, to get up on stage, be recognised as the best marketing team in Australia, you know, we would have never delivered that awesome work if we couldn't pull together. So those changes really were fundamental to the success of the loyalty part of the business. And what did success look like day to day? Yeah, look, what we had as the loyalty program within Virgin, we had some really sort of unparalleled growth over those years. We put on 30 to 40 partners, some major players. Our membership ballooned to nearly 10 million. And, uh, you know, we brought in some really complicated back-end CRM systems, but to really improve the customer experience. The size scale of these new partners of these systems are really led to just deeper engagement of our uh, members. So that became really evident in all of our results. And in practical terms, what did that do to help you clarify the steps you needed to take moving forward? It became clearer as an organisation what we were going to permit and what we weren't. And look, as a leadership team, we would go through exercises once we defined our behaviours and values to say, who's living this out? But also on the flip side, who's not, you know, and there was an exercise, a little bit confronting, but worthwhile of of a bus. And, you know, we had to say, well, who's helping to drive the bus and who's slashing the tyres? Now, you know, you don't go through an exercise like 
that to put anyone down. You go through an exercise to make sure we're living up to where we want it to be. And what we found is, you know, people who were identified as being the tie cutters, they're, they're actually stopping the progress. You know, they typically self-selected over, you know, the next few months because, you know, people saying, actually, you know what, maybe this isn't the place for me and, I'm, you know, there's going to be somewhere else. And we did find that often through those kind of exercises, it, it would start the necessary and right conversations. And within that change process, how did you develop the confidence and skills to take the business from a culture that sounded a bit broken at the start to a point that you were really kicking goals by the end? Yeah, it's funny you use the word confidence because I would have to say when you're in the thick of it, you do take a bit of a battering, you know, in the sense of you can have a bit of uncertainty around what to do and why, and you can double guess yourself. So I think a fundamental part of the journey for me was to build up confidence. So, for example, what was important was to get feedback from the team. Uh, How was I going as a leader? Where could I develop? Now, at first, you know, you leave the room and that's all about to happen. You think, oh, my goodness, what are they about to say? And this is kind of terrifying. And, you know, what I've learned over the period is, actually, you know what? Sometimes it's just the most basic things that are really useful in terms of what you could do to be a better leader. And what came out was, hey, it'd be great to do our one-on-ones in person. And this is not a big personal assault. It's just practical stuff that helps you get on with things day to day. And I think there is something in the Australian psyche and corporate culture and HR systems that we think that feedback is the bogeyman, but actually it's your friend and it just helps us improve and get on with things better today. And I think Steve provided a number of methods that meant we could collect it in a way that was a trusting environment and I got much more comfortable over time. And that trust developed with the team, obviously, to the extent that you were winning awards. Can you describe what that was like, having that really empowering, trusting environment? You know, I think the most powerful descriptor of what that was like was the feeling when I left Virgin. I'd been there, you know, uh, over seven years. Um, We'd been to war together, we'd fought a lot, and, you know, just through COVID more recently... I have to say I was surprised by the personal response I got when I left. You can underestimate sometimes the smallest actions can have the biggest impact. And I guess a whole number of people from different areas where I worked with more closely or less closely were just able to reach out and say, you know what, I really appreciated how you led. I felt like when you came into the room that you listened to me, I always felt valued And you know what, I think you do a really good job where you're going next. So so it's extremely gratifying to be, go through a process like that and to think, actually, you can make a tremendous difference in any leadership role in people's lives and achieving results. And uh, I think actually in leaving that, you know, it helps articulate because people say things they might not day to day. But you've got a unique perspective of being in a leadership role at an airline when COVID-19 hit which obviously took an enormous toll on the travel industry. What was that like and how did you lead during that time? Yeah, look, I think the, the airline industry was the canary in the coal mine with COVID and, and the first one to really feel it. I mean, it was public with all of a sudden international borders closed, aircraft grounded. You know, it was a strange time. I'm not going to say it wasn't without stress because there was so much to decide fast. We had to think about how to communicate to members, to team members, what our strategies were. 
So much was changing. One of the critical things is that I developed really strong relationships with people to get things done. And, you know, if I think about all the departments I used to hit, like uh, public affairs to my own team to legal, the ability to be on speed dial, real-time conversations, everyone get on the same page, gee, that was critical. In the heat of battle, you pick up skills fast, but also in the downtime, that, that's when you've actually got time to develop them. And that's often the business cycle. You will have periods of lull and then it's all on. And I think it's almost like a learn, keep getting better and go through the cycle again. You know, in a strange way, though, I actually found the whole time gratifying professionally because although we were thrown some real curveballs, I think some of the armour I'd been able to build up over the years really came to fruition when the pressure was on. You know, if I think about some of my direct team the ability to have short, sharp conversations to say, here's what you need to do the next hour, here's what I'm going to do, really help when you trust each other, especially when you're under deep pressure. So I think we actually operated really well as a team in a high environment, just staying focused on what needed to get done, but also checking in on each other. We realised that some of the team meetings we needed to have, we just needed to put down the agenda for a second and just ask people how they were, what's been happening for them the past week or two. And I think, you know, even even through the really tough things like having to stand down, you know, half the team at one point, you know, which was hard, but again, people res- understood what we were doing and why, and we just made sure we kept up the communications. And I think, you know, look, it was demanding, we had to pivot, there was a lot of extra work, but for me, it was a good chance to, you know, put into action a lot of the skills and experience learned over the years. Sounds like it was a great mix between your dad and your mum's leadership styles that you really, I guess, <laughs> emulated in that time, as well as obviously the work you'd done with Steve as well. So from your own growth point, what did you think you learned? Oh, 100%. It's actually a very good observation. Look, what I learned is we can be so often motivated by fear in how we approach things. You know, but when you actually get really bad news or something is just so far beyond, like, oh, you know, we're in voluntary administration, we're not flying, we're actually much better equipped to deal with this than we would ever suspect. And I think we just waste a lot of time in fear that we're not going to be able to do something, that we're not going to be able to respond. How do I approach this situation? Then something comes along that blows all those minor problems out of the water, and we're often in a much better situation to deal with it than we anticipated. So, Look, I think, again, it's just given me a a perspective and deeper experience. It sounds like your positivity and your possibility thinking has really come to the fore in that situation. But, Steve, community service is also a strong thread in your life and, and within your family too. What role does giving back and community play for you? It's always been very important to me. When I was in my 20s and first started at Qantas, for about 10 years, I used to help out, you know, feeding the homeless in Sydney. And, uh, you know, I even found a way to get distressed Qantas blankets out to Sydney and even parts of regional New South Wales. You know, when you've got that 20s, get up and go and I can change the world. And, you know, and that was, uh, it was through actually a lot of that time where I first met my wife as well. And something was important to both of us. And look, I think I got it again, a lot of that from my parents and, you know, 
and my mother, who always had a heart for the underdog, and you know, she with programs she used to set up as a school counsellor. She used to go into prisons to help people come back. She used to work with poor people in Egypt, and I think we got that from her. So I think just that sense of giving back. You know, it's funny in your 30s, though, because life kind of takes over and you get married and have kids and and you reminisce a bit about those times when you could have a more obvious impact. And how did that balance, I guess, with your professional leadership role? Was it a great balance for you? Did it keep you grounded? You know, interestingly, if I could sort of go back to the Qantas food van, I would have team members of mine come along to help serve the the people who were homeless and colleagues as well. You know, things get tense all the time in the corporate world. You're sort of arguing over this strategy or that or this person said this or they were rude on email. You know what any kind of four hours is like day to day. Gee, a lot of that stuff disappears when you've kind of slopped lentils together. You've sat next to you know, someone in the streets and, uh, you know, found out about their life. It just is, it's a great leveller. And for those relationships you then have on Monday, it just brought a great commonality and I think uh, put things in perspective. So it's no surprise that when you left Virgin during peak COVID in August 2020, you went to the International Justice Mission, an organisation aiming to end global slavery. Tell us how you went from huge corporate airline to global not-for-profit? So it's a big change for me. I'd sort of had such a long career in airlines and, you know, as we've discussed during this conversation, a lot of great fruit from the time there and I was, you know, almost emotionally attached to airlines. But for me, I'd always had something stirring back from my 20s in how can I use the skills I have and my experience to make a deeper impact in the world? And look, I had a friend send me a text out of the blue saying the International Justice Mission is recruiting for a CEO. And I kind of got the text, thought, oh, well, thanks for thinking on me, but that's not for me. Then, you know, I thought about it and I ended up chatting to my wife, who is a lawyer and understands, you know, the nature of their work. And she's like, gee, they do absolutely terrific work in the sense that they really go to the front line and strengthen justice systems And it's so substantial, you know, what the organisation does. And to give you a sense of the organisation, it's the world's biggest anti-slavery organisation with 26 offices around the world. And the more I looked into it and understood the effectiveness of the work and just the opportunity for me as a senior corporate executive to help build that, it became irresistible. So, Steve, what have been the biggest cultural differences you've noticed between the Enterprise Airlines and IJM? Well, you certainly can't bottle the passion that I've discovered since joining IJM. I mean, you can go through countless exercises in the corporate world to determine how we're making a difference to the world. And look, and in part, it's true in the sense of Virgin, you know, was great because you could send people on holidays and who doesn't like that? But when you join somewhere and you're trying to end global slavery in your lifetime, that brings a whole new set of dynamics. And that is a purpose. People believe in it. They want to be here. They are passionate. And, you know, with that passion also comes a, I actually want to be across so many things that we're doing because it's important and I understand it. You know, so therefore the kind of things that need to be worked through there is just being clear on, you know, how we get things done, who's responsible 
For what? Because as the organisation scales, there's less of an opportunity for rigorous debate around, uh, you know, each topic area. So, you know, in the exact same way as sort of the airline world and where I am now at IJM, it's a really worthwhile exercise to jump on a whiteboard as, as, as a group and say, what are our counterproductive behaviours day to day from, you know, that slow us down to getting to the mission and therefore what behaviours do we want day to day to drive us to that? And I think, you know, with that passion immediately came a group of people willing to put things down, work on solutions and, uh, you know, get on with it. Well, as you say, your role now really does have real-life human implications. How has the move changed you, do you think? Yeah, look, I think it has changed me. And one thing I'd observe about my day's day today, look, it's very busy, but I just feel in the flow, in the sense of I feel a real calmness and conviction in what I'm doing each day, the variety of it. One moment you're on a radio interview, the next you're chatting to a finance committee, then it's a supporter, team meeting, and, and there's such great variety, but I just feel well equipped for it. That sense of purpose really drives me that I I would wrestle previously on what I was supposed to do, whereas I felt this real sense of calm and you know peace almost as I go about things day to day. So that... You know, I sleep well at night. I sleep well at night. The days are full, but I sleep well. How has it changed me? Look, I've had to learn. I've had to learn fast. This is a new industry. This is really important work, you know, and Australia needs a loud voice on this topic. So I have had to, I think, in more ways than ever before, I've had to ask for a lot of advice. You know, I need to understand the subject. I need to understand what it takes to move from a CMO to a CEO. And in a structured and regular way, getting advice has become more important than ever. And how have you approached stepping up to that CEO role? What have you done to try and embrace that challenge? Yeah, it's funny. After, after being here for two weeks, I, I wrote a text to most CEOs I've worked for and said, you know what, I never gave you credit for how much you had going on. <laughs> It always looked easier from the other side (laughs) when you're juggling a lot. Look, I'd have to say there's a certain comfort in the role in the sense of knowing what I do know and knowing what I don't know. I think in any leadership role, we're going to bring certain elements, but we're not the full package. And I think what's been really important for me is to learn how to work with supporters, team members, uh, so that effectively we're achieving the organisation's missions because I'm just going to have natural muscles which I can flex more. So, look, there, yes, there's things which I will need to learn and I think if I was to hone in on one in particular, it's how do you use your time well? How do you, you know, make a judgement around that? And I have worked with a third party on some help with that. But there's also a degree of comfort in knowing that, you know, other people will complement gaps I have as well. So, Steve, if you had to look back on your time with Virgin and Qantas, what are the biggest lessons you've learned that you've taken with you into this next phase of your journey? Yeah, when when I left Virgin, I had a post on LinkedIn, and I think that summarises well my 17 years. And it actually comes down to the people I thanked, and there was three people. The first one was a gentleman by the name of David Halter, And I described him as the magic maker. And he was with me in my first day of version till the last. And he was the planning 
lead at our advertising agency. And we had a terrific relationship with um, CHE Proximity. And how we'd built up that relationship, often between clients and advertising agencies, there can be a real command and control thing. Because people in marketing worlds get bossed around by senior management, so therefore they boss the agency around because they can. We flipped it on its head. We had a real partnership. We celebrated each other's success. They nominated us for marketing team of the year. When there was a problem, we'd jump in a room and spend three hours workshopping it. We'd have fast conversations and it was real. It was a really great relationship. And David was an excellent marketing mind through all of that. And he'd helped unlock us doing some brilliant marketing through that time. So that was relationship one. Relationship two, I thanked my leader, Dean Chadwick, and I said, for letting me be me. And, you know, Dean and I had a very productive relationship. We got on well day today, but we're also quite different. And what I really appreciated was he knew for me to be effective how important it was things like investing in the team, like setting up things like the Steve Lacey sessions. And, you know, he let me be me and, and would actually really value that and we complemented each other very well. So I think that was a that was an important uh, sense of leadership learning. And then the third one was Steve Lacey, and I said, for being the culture shaper. And he'd been with us for, you know, five or six years of that journey. And I think the one thing through that leading teams engagement, which we got, was the ability to have genuine conversations. And there is a lot of time lost, a lot of energy loss in groups of people trying to do things when you just can't speak plainly, get to the bottom of things and move on. So learning how to have a genuine conversation is the fastest way to get to where you need to. It also helps steal things. It also helps build trust. So they're the kind of three components I've taken away from uh, 17 years. That was Steve Baird, CEO of the International Justice Mission and former head of marketing for Virgin's Velocity Frequent Flyer program talking with host Lisa Alexander-AM. Across all six episodes of the Leading Conversations podcast, you'll gain insights into how you can build high-performing teams and reshape the culture of your business. And for more information, head to leadingteams.net.au. Leading Conversations is produced by Sound Cartel for Leading Teams. Thanks for listening. Listening.